0: Welcome to Money for the Rest of Us. This is a personal finance show on money, how it works, how to invest it, and how to live without worrying about it. I'm your host, David Stein. Today is episode 297. It's titled, How to Protect Your Savings. On this show, we spend a lot of time talking about money. What is it? How is it created? What is the role of commercial banks, central banks, federal governments? We need to understand how money works and how to invest it in order to protect ourselves against monetary threats like inflation, deflation, hyperinflation, or currency devaluation. If there's anything that we've learned from this pandemic, is nothing is certain. Anything can happen. That doesn't mean we need to be alarmist or overly fearful, but it does mean we need to consider our exposures. That we have allocated our assets in a way to avoid ruin. That includes our monetary assets. In an episode earlier this year, titled Money is Debt, we discussed how cash is a perpetual non-interest-bearing liability issued by the central bank. It is debt. Money is debt, backed by debt. A couple of episodes ago, in episode 295, Can Central Banks Go Insolvent?, I quoted Ricardo Rees. He's a professor at the London School of Economics. He said, Insolvency of the central bank is not just theoretically possible. It is also frequent in practice across the world, as attested by the multiple currency reforms that have taken place. Central bank insolvency is equivalent to hyperinflation, which happens often all over the world. Insolvency then means that reserves and currency denominated in the old unit of account becomes worthless, or that there is hyperinflation and or currency reform. I didn't give really any examples of that as we kind of walk through the process, but I thought it would be helpful to share an example of a country where the central bank is effectively insolvent due to currency reform. It will lead to inflation of over 50% this year. It'll lead to bank depositors losing some of their money in what is known as a bail-in. We're going to look at that country in this episode. Also, we'll revisit a topic from last summer on stablecoins, a cryptocurrency form that is one potential option to protect our monetary assets. We'll also look at high-yield savings accounts, why they exist, In an era where interest rates are close to zero, how is it that banks are willing to pay 1.5% to depositors in a high-yield savings account? To start off, the country where the central bank is effectively insolvent is Lebanon. It's a country with about 7 million inhabitants. It lies on the Mediterranean coast. It is north of Israel and south of Syria. Lebanon became independent from France in 1943. And then there was a lengthy civil war that lasted from 1975 to 1990. An estimated 120,000 individuals died in that civil war. Before the civil war, one U.S. dollar was worth three Lebanese pounds. But during the civil war, the value decreased rapidly until 1992, One dollar was worth over 2,500 Lebanese pounds. And then it increased in value. And in December 1997, the pound, the Lebanese pounds, was fixed to the dollar. There was a dollar peg. 1,507.5 pounds equals one dollar. That has been in place for over 20 years until this year. The purpose of the peg was to show stability in the economy, to attract foreign capital. It was an effective dollarization of the economy. The economist points out that receipts, when you went to a store in Lebanon, they would print out in both the dollar and the pound. Shopkeepers would make change using dollars and pounds. They're very, very much interchangeable. To maintain a peg against the dollar, There's four things that are critical. One, if you're going to use a dollar and peg your currency to the dollar, you need a flow of dollars, of U.S. dollars into the country, which means you need at least balanced trades or perhaps a trade surplus. So you're receiving dollars into the country. You can't run a persistent trade deficit because then you're not attracting dollars. Into the country. You have money flowing out as you pay dollars effectively to buy things, especially oil. Oil is settled in dollars. Many other traded items are settled in dollars. So if you run a trade deficit, you're sending dollars away, you're not attracting them in, and it puts pressure on the peg. A second thing you need is a functioning and productive economy. You need income of households to be growing. Businesses earning profits. You need them to have confidence to transact in the economy, that the pay will be stable, and that there's not much corruption. A third thing is you can't have huge government debt borrowings, denominated in foreign currencies. If the government is in debt and has dollar-denominated debt or euro-denominated debt, then it has to, again, these currencies are flowing out. You need the dollars flowing in in order to maintain that peg and to build up foreign currency reserves. So if there's a threat against your currency, the central bank has the means to protect it, to keep the peg in place. Finally, the fourth thing, you need the confidence of businesses and households and investors that the peg will hold. That the official exchange rate is equivalent to the exchange rate in the black market. That there's not a big difference between the official peg and trading in the informal economy. Lebanon hasn't had that. It's one of the most indebted countries in the world. Its government debt as a percent of GDP, gross domestic product, the output of its economy, is over 150%. It imports vastly more goods and services than it exports. It runs a huge trade deficit. Its current account deficit, which is primarily trade, is 26% of GDP. Its budget deficit is 11% of GDP. Those two things put downward pressure on the pound, making it difficult for the central bank to keep the peg. The central bank in Lebanon is the Banque du Liban, Not very good French. BDL is what it is for short, the Lebanese central bank. Here's what they would do. They would borrow dollars from commercial banks, local commercial banks, to sustain the currency peg. To the extent there's a current account deficit, money is flowing out. That puts downward pressure on the Lebanese pound. The central bank needs foreign currency to be buying the Lebanese pound to prop it up. To get those dollars, they would borrow them from local commercial banks. The local commercial banks would get the dollars by attracting depositors that would be willing to put money, dollar assets, in the bank. The BDL would pay above-market interest rates to commercial banks to borrow those dollars. In turn, the Lebanese commercial banks would pay depositors above-market interest rates to store their dollars in the bank. It was a system that worked for a number of years. But again, you need confidence that the peg will hold. And that confidence began to wane. The Economist reports that bank deposits, which had grown pretty steadily year by year, leveled off in 2018. And then they began to decline. In the past year, deposits at commercial banks fell by 8%. The central bank didn't have enough money to repay the commercial bank, didn't have the dollars. In October 2019, the commercial banks in Lebanon began to establish limits on dollar withdrawals from the bank. Many ATMs stopped dispensing dollars. Banks lowered the the limits that individuals were allowed to withdraw. At first, it was less than $1,000 a day, then even lower. They started banning transactions after 5 p.m. and on weekends, which made it difficult for people that worked during the day to, to transact and to get dollars. You started to see a weakening of the currency in the black market, where instead of a dollar fetching 1,500 pounds, you started going up to 1,600 pounds and then 1,750 pounds. Economists reported that the bank still honored checks. So the wealthy would buy things, luxury goods, in order to start to move some of their money in the bank into something real. There's a household good store in Lebanon called Cory Home, and it advertised new washing machines for people to buy as a way to, quote, survive the haircut, the potential for the currency to be devalued. There were huge protests in Lebanon against corruption and the incompetence of the government and central banks. The protests forced out The prime minister and a new prime minister, Hassan Diab, took over in January 2020. In addition, I mentioned the Lebanese government has been borrowing. Now, only about 16% of the debt was denominated in foreign currencies. With the dollar shortage and the euro shortage, on March 9, 2020, Lebanon defaulted for the first time in the country's history on its sovereign debt a $1.2 billion denominated euro bond. Prime Minister Hassan Diab said, how can we pay the creditors while there are people in the streets without the money to buy a loaf of bread? The government debt will need to be restructured. Now, one-third of the debt is owned by the Lebanese central bank. One-third is held by commercial banks. And when that debt is marked down, The central bank will be insolvent. It will suffer losses. It already has incurred losses, according to a Bloomberg article from April. $40 billion of losses collectively has hit the central bank. $7 billion this year, $3 billion in the last three weeks. Prime Minister Diab said the central bank governor should come out and honestly tell people the facts and what's happening and what are the steps to resolve this and reasons behind it. In addition, the central bank owes money to the commercial banks, doesn't have the dollars to pay them, and the commercial banks also hold one-third of the government debt. They didn't want defaults either because their holdings will be marked down. Capital Economics, the economics research firm that I subscribe to, sent me a report on what's going on with Lebanon. And they point out that given the exposure of commercial banks, that the bank shareholders, both the ordinary shareholders, the stockholders, and preferred, that they're going to be effectively wiped out, and that there will probably be some form of bail-in from depositors, that they will have to take a haircut on their holdings, especially the dollar-denominated depositors. Now, there's a concentration because the banks have been attracting big deposits, from overseas, outside the country, those deposit holders will probably be hit the most, those with large balances, hopefully protecting those with smaller balances. Lebanon announced that they are seeking $10 billion of outside funding, primarily coming from the International Monetary Fund, and that they will devalue the Lebanese pound by 57%. It will go from its current peg of $1,505 0.7 per U.S. dollar to $3,500 this year. That is a huge devaluation, which, again, currency reform, as Ricardo Reis points out, you mark down the value of the currency. What is currency? They're central bank liabilities. And it leads to hyperinflation. The government expects inflation to rise by more than 50% this year. The public's already angry because they couldn't get their money out of the banks, and now potentially bail-ins and the value of the currency has plummeted, which means import prices will skyrocket. There will need to be a restructuring. This is an example of a central bank in a country where the peg didn't hold, where there was a devaluation, where depositors are hurt. How do we protect our savings no matter where you live? Before we continue, let me pause here and share some words from this week's sponsors. If you've been using Mint to manage your finances, you know they shut down several months ago. Well, let me tell you about the budgeting solution, the financial tracking solution I've been using for the past number of months. It's Monarch Money. Monarch Money is a top-rated all-in-one personal finance app. It gives you a comprehensive view of all your accounts, investments, transactions, and more. You can create custom budgets like I've done and right now get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com/david that's m o n a r c h m o n e y.com/david for your extended 30-day free trial we have a brand new sponsor to our show it's yahoo finance yahoo's been around for decades my first email outside of work was a yahoo email address comprehensive financial news and analysis. You need to check out Yahoo Finance, particularly if you haven't been there in a while. Check it out at yahoofinance.com. That's yahoofinance.com. Well, one thing we could do is don't keep all your money in the bank. Hold assets that are denominated in a currency beside your home currency. Examples would be gold. Gold is an asset. It's a type of currency? Now, you don't want to put all your money in gold. That's a speculation. But having some, 5%, maybe 10% in gold is a protection against monetary risk. Cryptocurrencies can be a protection. Again, we don't want a huge amount. These are speculations because there's not a cash flow or income stream. We can own real assets. Real estate, rental real estate, land, something that will maintain its value in the face of hyperinflation. Owning non-domestic stocks, equities of companies. where you have an ownership that are generating profits and cash flow in a currency outside of your home currency. Often investors have home country bias, so they want to put most of their stock exposure in their home currency. If you invest outside your home currency, again, you get protection against monetary risk in your home country. Now, domestic stocks are somewhat mixed because how deeply will the economy be harmed if there's some type of currency devaluation? The Lebanese stock market has fallen 29% in the past year. They're still quoting it effectively in the dollar because the peg is still holding. But it has returned negative 8% annualized over the past 10 years even though it has gained 25% year-to-date. Those are some of the things that we can do. Own some real assets. Own some alternative currencies. Own businesses, stocks, denominated in foreign currency. Having your own business that can generate cash flow, irrespective of what happens to your home currency. One of the things that I've discussed in the show, most recently, I think it was last summer, 2019, was stablecoin and an example was the Facebook Libra. What a stablecoin is, it's a type of cryptocurrency, so it's a digital currency with a public ledger, but it's backed by some type of assets. Most stablecoins are backed by the US dollar. An example is the stablecoin that is sponsored by Circle. Circle was a cryptocurrency app that was a sponsor to the show a couple years ago that has pivoted and now they have sponsored a stable coin called USDC. Its value, the total amount outstanding, is around $734 million. So it's still small, but again, that $734 million of USDC stablecoin is backed by dollars. Now, what are dollars? Dollars are perpetual non-interest-bearing liabilities of the federal reserve so the value of the stable coin will only be as good as how strong the dollar is bitcoin's not backed by anything or ethereum and then and that's why they're so volatile relative to other currencies but a stable coin backed by the dollar will trade like the dollar still can be impacted by inflation over time usdc and other stable coins paxos standards another one tether the Gemini dollar, the Binance dollar. These are all stable coins backed by the dollar. I know very little about them. But an advantage of a stable coin is it is a different way that you can hold currency apart from your home currency. And there's an argument for using it for transactions. Businesses that are set up to take stable coins, they'll have lower transaction fees because they're not paying a credit card company 1% to 3% to process. An individual that wants to send money overseas, remittances, can do so with very low fees using a stablecoin. So it's borderless. It's 24 hours. You don't have to wait for a bank to open to withdraw or to send or to wire. You can just use it and access it. Now, you need somebody willing to take stablecoin, so there needs to be a network effect. I personally don't own any stablecoin. Most of my cryptocurrencies, Bitcoin and Ethereum. Most of these dollar backed stable coins actually run on the Ethereum network. So the transactions occur on the Ethereum network. So I don't know where stable coins are going, but you've seen the interest in stable coins increase since the pandemic has occurred. It's not that the value of the coins are going up, they're tied to the dollar, but the interest, the amount outstanding issued is growing. Jeremy Allaire, he's the co-founder and CEO of Circle, points out, he said that new signups to use USDC is coming from e-commerce marketplaces, advertising networks, luxury goods producers, recruiting platforms, peer-to-peer lending platforms, payment companies, software firms. So there is an interest, still small, relatively small, but it will be a fascinating monetary development to follow especially given the hiccups that Libra faced because they wanted to be backed by multiple assets, dollars and other currencies. And most of the stable coins are just backed by the US dollars. Finally, I had a question from a Money for the Restless Plus member on high-yield savings accounts. And it really got me thinking about why do they exist? Most savings accounts, there's a report by Money that said as of April 20th, the average saving account interest rate in the U.S. was 0.07%. Pretty paltry. Yet there are banks out there, Ally, Marcus Bank, which is owned by Goldman Sachs, Simple Bank and CIT, that are paying the highest I saw, was 1.55%. Now it was higher. Marcus and Ally were paying 2.35 percent last summer. But now it's one5 to 1.55%. Is it going to drop to zero? It doesn't look to be. I mean, these banks have paid higher rates than the average bank for years now. I looked at the Ally Bank annual report for 2019, and they wrote, Deposits represent 75% of the company's overall funding, serving as the gateway to customer acquisition while providing stable, And cost effective funding to support our asset growth. They continue the formula for our success is viewed by many as the blueprint for how to expand and to direct digital consumer banking. So these are primarily online banks attracting deposits with above average rates. Ally says this supports our asset growth. And if you've listened to earlier podcasts where I've talked about how banking works, I've mentioned how banks. When they make a loan, they create a deposit. So they issue a loan. The borrower signs the documents. The bank has a loan receivable as an asset. And then the bank creates the deposit that the borrower then receives. The bank, when it initially makes a loan, doesn't have to go find the money to do that. But that's really only part of the story because then the borrower typically takes that money out. And so an ally says these deposits are supporting their asset growth. In aggregate, across all banks, across the entire U.S. banking system, banks are creating money. That's what creates the money supply. But at an individual bank, they can't have all the deposits flow out. They need to attract deposits. Here's how Warren Coates, an economist, put it. He mentions a book titled Where Does Money Come From? and and writes, the authors argue that banks create deposits by lending rather than having to receive deposits before they lend. However, this well-known aspect of the bank money supply process is only part of the story. While a bank loan an asset of the bank is extended by crediting the borrower's deposit account with the bank, a liability of the bank, the newly created deposit will almost immediately be withdrawn to pay for whatever it was borrowed for. Thus, the willingness of banks to lend in the first place must depend on their expectations of being able to finance their loans from existing or new deposits, by borrowing in the inner bank or money markets, or by the repayment of previous loans, at an interest rate that is less than the rate on their loans. This is the accounting aspect of banking. The rate they earn on the loans needs to be greater than their funding cost, what their deposit balance is. It gets kind of confusing because how an individual bank works from an accounting standpoint is a little bit different than how it works across the entire monetary system, where overall with the banking system, loans do create deposits. But at the individual bank level, they always have to figure out, well, what are my liabilities? What am I paying out for them? Is it greater than what I'm earning on my assets, which is primarily loans? And that spread is known as the net interest spread or the net interest margin. For Ally Bank, that spreads 2.45%. So they earn more. They have a big auto lending business. They're earning more on their loans than they're paying on their deposits, even paying well above average rates. These high-yield savings accounts are a real phenomenon. You can link them to your regular bank. It's a vehicle to save. You need to stay under the FDIC insurance limit in the US of $250,000 or whatever that limit might be in your country. And be, be mindful what's going on with the overall monetary system. We've not had bail ins in the US at this point. But for a portion of your cash, these can be attractive options. In conclusion, then, how do we protect our savings? Well, we diversify our exposure different currencies, real assets, and monitor what is going on with the monetary system, with central banks, government finances, interest rates, the stories investors and savers are telling themselves, the narrative driving it. That's why I spend so much time on these type of topics. They interest me, but we need to be informed what is going on, particularly as the Federal Reserve is lending in ways it has never done before. And what are the risks of that? We will stay on top of that on this podcast. We need to so that we can protect our savings. That's episode 297. You can get show notes for this episode at moneyfortherestofus.com. While you're there, please sign up for my free weekly email. It's called The Insider's Guide. I'll send you a links to that week's episode, as well as an article on money, investing, and the economy. Some of the best writing I do each week, just to your inbox. You can sign up for that at moneyfortherestofus.com. Everything I've shared with you in this episode has been for general education. i am not considered your specific risk situation. I've not provided investment advice. This is simply general education on money, investing, and the economy. Have a great week.